and just do it. <laughs> well, <I'm> easy. <laughs> Are you easy, huh? So welcome yeah. everyone. This is Little Gay Guide. I'm Ron Zakai. And today I have the pleasure of interviewing and talking with Drew Curtis. We know each other for a very, very long time. Drew, on that note, I will leave it to you. Uh, tell us a little about yourself. Yeah, so um, I've done a bunch of stuff. Uh, but the, the main thing that I'm known for is I started a website called FARC back in 1999. And that's what I'm going for, what, 21 years? Coming up on 22 in February. Uh, it's one of the oldest uh, online communities on the internet. And uh, predates Reddit, was actually the inspiration for Reddit. Um, Alexis and Steve have gone on the record saying so. And in fact, uh, we, we tried to uh, copy each other as often as we could. I tried the voting thing. I didn't like how it worked out. I thought, because we're, we're trying to be funny. Uh, they were just trying to source uh, mostly tech news or whatever. We're trying to be funny. And I found that um, if you turn humor over to the crowd, they don't do it right. It's all puns and cats, basically. There's no broad agreement on what's funny other than puns and cats. And I don't like puns much. I like cats okay, but I feel like there's a bigger world out there. So we'd, we'd it's a thin slice. Yeah. It's a very thin slice. Yeah, thing. it's okay. Also, couldn't figure out how you would safely moderate a large community like that. And, uh, turns out I was right. Nobody's figured it out yet. We're still there dealing with that same crap. Uh, like uh, friends of mine keep saying, it would be nice if we could make a new mistake, but we can't for some reason. So, for um, some reason, I've done other moderation. Yes. Moderation doesn't yeah. work. No, it, it does, but people just haven't realized how much overhead it actually takes. Or what I keep pointing out is it's the actual product. And for some reason, no social network seems to realize that. Uh, it's kind of like if you're a cable company, it would be customer service. They don't seem to realize that either. And that's why everybody hates them. But anyway, uh, so I've done a few other things. Um, what my tendency has been over the last 20 years is to do, I can run FARC pretty much at like half time by just basically taking care of, you know, programming it. And by that, I mean the content, not the, uh, the actual programming. I do, I do programming also, but it takes longer. Uh, but I, so I've, I have this sort of pattern of I'll wander away for a couple of years and I'll try a thing or two different. And so I wrote a book was the first one I did. And then I went to business school, which is where we met. Yep. And then I decided to try to work on a startup that, killed patent trolls which is a whole intellectual property realm which i feel strange to know so much about consider it's like it's the most boring part of law yet the most fun as it turns out uh because when you're lining off against these guys like normally in a court of law the other side has an occasionally a, a good point or at least you see where they're coming from and you get it but patent trolls nope they're assholes all of them are assholes they deserve to die and it kind of changes the way lawyers feel about their jobs because they feel like they're doing something good. But uh, then after that, that didn't quite work out. There's a story there that's too long to go into. But, uh, but you do have a TED talk just... about it that I will put yes. it down in the link. And it's a pretty yeah. damn good one. So yeah, yeah go on. Kind of gives you an idea of the background out of it. <laughs> so it turned out with the, with the, the patent troll killing company idea I came up with was just too weird uh, for other attorneys to sign off on. Turns out it did work. Somebody copied it and executed it. So yeah, it works out great. But then I, so I was like, okay, well, if this is going to, one door closes, another door opens. I ran for governor of Kentucky in 2015 as an independent back when both sides were bad. Remember that? Remember when both sides were bad? <laughs> you remember that? It, yeah, that was a long time ago. Uh, now one side's bad. Uh, it's kind of funny how that happened. Villainous. I mean, I would say villainous because yeah. I still have arguments when it comes to the center of blue. And we've had this discussion before. It yeah. amazes me, but we'll talk about politics a bit later. Yeah. Yeah, there yeah, were exactly. two sides so, before. There were. Yeah, 
And both sides were kind of bad. They were both kind of like stacked up to, you know, I'm going to tell you some crap and you're going to believe it and give me money and we're going to get elected and hold power. And then one of them was like, why don't we cater to white supremacists and then just go batshit crazy? And it was like, well, and it worked was the problem. Uh, and now we're stuck with that. But anyway, we all know more about that, but it was an interesting actually, run no, anyway. No, no, no. Let's, let's pause for a second. I'm curious because yeah. that is actually one of the political tangents I have for you. Sure. Considering the results of, of, of the previous election, current election, and considering the way we're seeing like, A, the voter turnout was, was as massive as it was. And yeah. we always had this ideology, at least I did, that there were shades of blue if there were a lot more people voting and it will have uh, more social economic policies that cater to the middle or at least to the most of the country when it comes to where we're going. And suddenly we're looking at something a lot different, which is red is red, blue is blue, and that's that. Uh, do you think the red side of the equation is not necessarily racist, which of course they are, at least to some degree, a lot of them are. Uh, it's a good rather, core constituency. Yeah, it's a good, it's, thank you. Uh, but there's another yeah. element, which is the hiding of the Texas part. Like the, yeah. the, the whole taxation element, I feel it's not being discussed. Yeah. Is that- Because well, okay? most people can't grasp the concepts. So that's part uh, of it. I mean, and I mean, you're active in it. I'm active in it because I got to do a news thing, but- most of my friends are not, uh, I'd say I put it at 90% are not really paying attention. Huh. They just, they kind of, they get heads up the weekend before and they're like, okay, who's running. And, uh, usually that's why party affiliation matters so much is because the, the parties have realized to go back to a little bit of both sides are bad. They've at least both identified that it's a team sport. And it's like, if I don't care who wins, I'm probably going to go for my team. And so they, they kind of go that route. And that's how a lot of this stuff kind of, flies under the under the radars because all the parties tell their own guys well everything we're doing actually helps you in reality uh in in, a, in many cases it's not true uh and it's also not unusual for people to vote against their own interests for example i technically if i could get over the the, the racism and the xenophobia and the uh lack of policy and you know all those other things i ought to be a republican because financially that would be the thing that would work out in my favor so when people ask the question why do people vote against their own interests? I'm like, I don't know, because I'm doing it too. Um, now that said, it's like, I feel like um, it's not just my interest. Like for example, I don't want to be a billionaire and have to have my own private army to keep people from breaking into my house and seeing people dying on the streets. Because I feel like that's the worst scenario. I'm also not a billionaire. Most, but yeah, but most people is, don't see yeah. this correlation that you just pointed out because other right. people's well-being is a direct effect into mine. Yes, other correct. people's well-being. But a lot of people... A lot of people weren't raised like that, though, especially mm -hmm. business folks, especially attorneys. There's a very there's a very strong win at all cost group out there. And those people need to be contained all the time. One of them uh, was president for the last four years. We had to deal with that. So, uh, yeah. So I, as far as the way things are playing out now, like so this entire last four years has been a complete anomaly. Now, not necessarily in global politics, because populist candidates do show up all the time. But usually what happens is, is they show up and there's a slide into fascism. And uh, I don't know the answer to this question, but I can't think of an alternative. But a friend of mine, Josh Marshall, over a Talking Points memo about a week after the election when Biden won, tweeted out the following thought, which was, and I find this interesting because I can't think of a counterexample. Has there ever been a country, uh, in, at least in modern history, that started out as a democracy, started to slide into fascism and then voted that guy out before he got there? And I think the answer is no. no. Uh, I can't think of one. Um, but yeah, it's like, and part of the reason is because, you know, they just hadn't quite gotten around to, it wasn't something Trump was doing on purpose, but it was clearly where that was going to end up 
because narcissists capable of remaking the entire system top to bottom will eventually do so and it will be a fascism so it's not an ideology it's more of a it's just you know that's how it works it's like you either saved us incompetence yeah you, us. yeah if he was if he was good we would have been screwed we would have never made it out but at any rate i thought it was an interesting concept because not only has that not happened in american politics but we also haven't seen an example of anybody turning it around either and, and not, i'm not saying we're out of the woods but that's at least a good step so here's a couple anomalies that i did see though um one of the things was is that uh the 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 polls people have been giving the polls a hard time turns out at the end of the day they got pretty close in fact one of my favorite pollsters when he produced his uh, electoral map of the united states nailed it 50 for 50 it's a uh, crystal ball actually is the guy's uh they're really cool. They're sort of like a one or two man shop, I think, but they, they nailed it. And they took all kinds of heat because they had Florida losing and Georgia winning, which on the Monday before the election, that seemed really damn weird. And then by Wednesday, we were all hoping for it. But uh, so one of the, the things they've been looking at was like, okay, so what did we miss? And aside from polling error and all that, there was one data point that jumped out. The, of the people who decided the week before the election to vote who were not planning on it, 75% or more voted for Trump. Wow. And that would be one way you could miss it in the polls. Now, the other interesting sort of thing is uh, my friend uh, Marcos over at the Daily Coast has an interesting theory also, which he says that this election was not a pol standard political election. I mean, obviously, right? But he thinks that that's not why the voters were there either. A lot of people showed up because they just retired to Trump. And a lot of people showed up at the last minute because they started thinking that maybe he was in trouble. And they were right. Uh, so they decided to go do something. So Marcos's theory is and we're going to find out in early January in the runoff election in Georgia, which his theory is, is that if Trump's not on the ballot, Republicans aren't coming. We'll see that's, if, he's right. if he is, made, then that's, yeah. that's the game change. That's the game change right there. If that's the case, then it turns out that, okay, we're still in good shape. We just had to get this anomaly out of the system. And now it looks like what we thought it did. How do you reconcile this idea of, because I am still wrestling with it, this whole cognitive dissonance, which, which it's its own thing and a cult, which I really think Trumpism has, has, has too many of the markings of a cult, but let's shelf that. Let's compartmentalize that. There, there, there's, there were several conversations in the last week, I'm sure we've been aware of them, especially in the news, that they're starting to come up, especially Trump voters in Georgia. Well, if it's rigged on one end, why do we need to show up for this election? Why do we yes. need to show up for this? I, Please thoughts on this because I am stumped. Oh, okay. I have many thoughts on this actually. So <laughs> you got to sort of take the scenario of what's going on. First of all, there's not a lot of forethought that got us to where we're at. Trump's a narcissist. And we always knew that, knew that when he was going to lose, he was going to do this. There was no doubt. The thing was, is nobody has ever done this before. We don't know how it plays out. And initially it was a little worrisome because it was like, well, you know, are they going to manage to find some trick in the courts to flip this thing over and, invalidate the results or they going to declare martial law yeah and like we're not completely out of the woods yet but what it's starting to look like is he's getting nowhere with the court fights and it turns out that if you tell your constituency that the election is rigged they will not only believe you but then they're going to wonder why you need to show up and vote because if it's rigged then well, well then who cares and that's actually starting to happen as you're seeing a lot of people i think one likely outcome of this is that it's backfires spectacularly for the Republican party because the lack of saying anything about it, like they are basically telling people don't bother voting because you, you we're not going to win. And so if you convince your own voters of that, they're going to be like, well, screw it. Especially the ones that showed up just this one time because they thought they might make a difference and it didn't. And now it's like, not only did, did it not, but it couldn't 
And they're like, oh, well, you know what? All right, then the hell with it. It's going to just going to go back to sleep. So what is the protected? What is your protected? Uh, let's say if you get to envision or at least project what could happen in Georgia. I'm seeing that I'm seeing the dissolution or disenfranchisement of voting in general, because they're, they're, I'm seeing people saying, well, if it's rigged, why do I need to do this on the Republican side? Yeah. But but would it really happen? Right. No, it wouldn't. But if they think it will and they don't show up, then, you know. <laughs> That's that's the big kicker. So um, what what I think is going to happen is Stacey Abrams is down there, the master organizer. She got I can't remember how many million people it was on the rolls in Georgia, but it's it's pretty much she's not willing to take the credit for it. But I, I honestly think it had a lot to do with it. I mean, you activate a million extra voters in any state, including one the size of Georgia, which they got the one big city. So a million anywhere, though, that that probably moves the needle in most states. So if, and I don't see any reason why this won't happen, they stay motivated and they show up and the Republicans go, well, the hell with this, then I think you see the two senators coming in as Democrat and then it goes from there. But there's a further sort of weird thing playing out and that is this. So the way that the narcissists and populists in particular sort of build their power bases, the people willing to toady the most are the ones at the top. And the minute anybody crosses you, you get thrown under the bus. Like, so we saw... Uh, we saw um, uh, Barr, uh, uh, Attorney General Barr, yeah. have this happen, where yesterday he announced that he didn't see any evidence of any uh, rigging at the polls, and, and he immediately got thrown under the bus. This is why no Republicans are coming out against it. In fact, um, today, there was a Republican that got, I can't remember which senator it was, I think it was Gardner maybe? Somebody to say off the record, the Republican senator, what they really thought, and he said, we all know this is crap, but none of us can go against it because it's political suicide. Now, the reporter that got that off the record decided there are a couple of cases where you can go back on the record. And one of them is if they tell you something that is going to cause material harm to you know people or the entire country if it doesn't get out. So the reporter just dumped it and said they and ended wow. the recording. Yeah. So they're all thinking this over here, but here's the thing. So nobody's going to make this move. Anybody who does is going to get thrown under the bus. And eventually what's likely to happen is, is that, well, he's going to run out of people to blame. Like here's who's, who's going to get it next. Well, so Rudy Giuliani's team can't seem to win a court case. Oh, he was well, getting out of the bus. No doubt. None. Yeah. So he's next. So it's like, once that happens, it's going to be Rudy's fault. Rudy didn't bring in a good enough case. He's going to get tossed down there, et cetera, et cetera, and so on. And eventually where I think this goes is basically, I think Trump leaves the party and takes all the crazy assholes with him, which I'm sure the Republicans are like, good, but there's not enough left of them you think to they're gonna pull put anything together. You think they're going to pull a Nixon? Remember the whole Nixon thing of, I wasn't here, I was back in Israel and I was too, yeah. too young for that. I was too remember, young, I remember, remember. Yeah, I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm born in 79, but, but still yeah. I remember history-wise when the whole Nixon Republican party back then, they said, oh, you know, we learned our lesson, we good people, he was a one-man show, we just yeah. couldn't do anything. You think they're going to do the same kind of bait and switch on, well, we couldn't do anything in the last four years because it was a one-man show. How are they going to yeah. spin this? Yeah, so Nixon didn't have the charisma to take his, his support base with it, was the thing. Nixon also wasn't run out by the Republican Party either, necessarily. He was run out by the Democrats who were going to impeach him. And he bounced because he was like, well, this is embarrassing, so I'm just going to get out of here. This is going to happen anyway. Let me go. And then cut a deal with uh, Ford to drop a uh, pardon on him on the way out. So then you know, he kind of got away with it. But they, he didn't take any, any support with him. So after he was gone, 
the Republican Party could go, well, okay, you know what? We don't know who that guy was. He wasn't one of our dudes. That was just, you know, don't worry. We'll put up somebody better next time. Don't worry about it. And it kind of worked because six years later, Reagan won. Yeah. So, you know, they it, it kind of successful. The thing about it this time is Trump takes his base with him. And whether he leaves the Republican Party or not, he's taking a chunk with it one way or the other. So I think this means either the Republicans have to continue to be the party of Trump or he breaks off. And I think he eventually breaks off when he runs out of enough people because you can only throw so many people under the bus before you run out of people. I mean, it was it was literally a joke, right? It was a running joke with the whole bingo thing. Like it was a running joke when it comes to cabinet. Any any actually any appointee of his when it comes to the main yeah. guys. It was a it was a pretty long joke for a really, really fun tension straight into the political landscape because we're going into a really interesting time. And I have this theory, and it's just a theory. Please entertain me. Uh, it always seems the Republicans are really good at running up a deficit, creating a dumpster fire, fucking everything up, and then whatever Democrat picks it up has to deal with this forest fire or wildfire, and it's all about putting out fires rather than actually building up solid policy. Um, it seems to be have going on since Reagan. So my question is, how, or if, if at all possible, to do something different this time? It's all just putting a fire. Yeah. So, uh, well, that's a good question. Actually, there was a great, I want to say it was vice or vice or Vox. I get them confused because, you know, V words, <laughs> but uh, said that what they ought to do is basically they said that was kind of a mistake that Obama made is that between 2008 and 2016, he was going to try to be a consensus builder, but everything that he ended up passing, every big thing had zero Republican support. And so it turns out he might as well have just, he, he gave a whole bunch of concessions away for nothing. And, things are even worse now. So there's no reason to believe any Republicans going to bounce over and support anything, even if it's a good idea, they're just not going to do it. I mean, if they're going to back the crazy racist asshole while he tries to take down democracy, I don't think they're going to get behind healthcare, you know, no, or, or taxation no, or something boring. No. So their, their idea was, is not only that, but it was to flood the field in a completely different way. So that was, I mean, it was, it was not the, it was flood the zone was what um, it was abandoned came up with, which was mostly for information warfare the idea was is that if you basically if you print everything that could be true nobody can figure out what it is so the idea would be but do that from a policy perspective so basically rather than giving them that one thing like like healthcare that took literally years for obama to get passed and it was forever their thing was like do them all at once so they can't concentrate on one of them can't get everybody riled up about obamacare being socialized medicine it's like do it all do that to your your taxation your police reform your blah 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 just like all out the door immediately full sprint for two years see what you get at the midterm and i think that might be a good idea you say because basically every they'll as much as everybody got tired of what did trump tweet today or in some cases two or three times a day i mean that was at least just noise imagine if it was policy and uh i think that's not a bad strategy so i would think that's what they should on? do would it take it on well it's there's a weird i i there i don't know uh did anybody over in the biden administration see that article almost definitely um the other thing that's interesting is is i always also look for you know solid movement to back up at least you know things that could be and one thing that is fascinating apparently and i saw this just today the biden administration is moving as quickly as possible to find appointments for positions in departments that don't require congressional approval they're trying to clean the trump appointees out as fast as possible and the only reason you do want to do that that's never been done before is because they're getting ready for a full sprint or there's a national security risk or both. Um, we uh, are I don't in the know the pandemic. Yeah. yeah. It's, 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 there, yeah. there is some security. Yeah. Some national security is happening in the background on our third So that's point. a thing there. Go yeah. ahead. I don't know what it is, but I, I, I won't tie it together, but I'm keeping my eyes on it. I, 
There's a curious, I, I'm actually curious to see what they can do because they are putting extraordinarily competent people. And by the way, you know me, I'm left of left, but when it comes to centrism, they are putting very centrist candidates that are extraordinarily qualified, like extraordinarily, like the resumes yeah. are scary, which is to me at this point, by the way, you remember I was a complete anti-everything when it comes to the policy and centrism. Today, when I look at where the country and how the country looks like, I really truly feel like, oh, maybe centrism actually works better because there is an answer. There's a lot of rebuilding. <laughs> yes. Yeah, there's a lot of rebuilding that needs to happen and we need those people for that. So I feel, I feel like maybe, and, and that's the problem is, is like, if you wanted to do like a full out sprint on super progressive stuff, I, yeah, there's probably no way we have to put it all back together first and then do it. That said, um, Biden has said in a couple of interviews, one in particular with the Rolling Stone, uh, which was out about six months ago, that I was surprised that the Republicans didn't make a big deal of because he basically said he wanted to be bigger. He wanted to do a bigger new deal. And I'm not saying meet green new deal, like a new deal, like FDR style thing that FDR did. Yeah, That doesn't sound centrist to me. And uh, it also sounds like he kind of knows what he's got. So he's looking to go big. He has said, um, and he seems to be putting together the team yeah. that can do it. And then now the question is what will happen? I don't know. I don't matter I, a lot to That'll matter a lot with what happens in Georgia. Here's how this will play out, though. So if Georgia votes two Democrat senators in, the next thing will happen is we're going to get Puerto Rico and D.C. as states. And I've said that a couple of times, and people are like, so you really sure about that? Yeah, I am sure, because the House already passed it. It's just what? waiting for the Senate. Yeah, it's ready that. to go. It, pa it passed the House. It's sitting huh. there. So that's how I know. They don't have to refile this damn thing. McConnell's just got it in a drawer somewhere. Well, if the Democrats get the Senate... McConnell well, you slam those home. Bills in the drawer. I know he's got a big drawer. There's a lot of stuff in there. <laughs> Go on, including his sexuality. Well, anyway, that's probably not fair, but I, I, he's he's an asshole. So, uh, I, but at any rate, uh, yeah, he's anyway. not he's not worth it. That's the reality. Yeah. He's, not, yeah. he's, he's by the way, actually, complete tangent, and I will actually indulge both of us on this when it comes to character studies, because it wasn't even in my question array today. But I am curious because you are a study of people and you are a study of cultures and. I think you have the same fascination. I do a similar fascination. I do when it comes to structures. I know he's a comfortable, he sleeps comfortably at night. There's no doubt in my mind yeah. that he sleeps comfortably at night. And I know that it requires a level of sociopathy that just built into the job. What I don't get is why does nobody else around it sees it? Is it something when it comes to, as an expert Israeli, I look at the system from the outside and I'm like, there's something sociopathically built into any business decision in the United States. And we had conversation around this before, but is, is that the, the level of blindness? Is that the, the, the dissonance that I'm not seeing? Is that the cognitive? It might be. I mean, the problem is it's hard for people to imagine what it's like to be somebody completely different with completely different thought processes. Like I know what a sociopath is, but I can't imagine what it's like. And, and then it, like, I, or the other way, I, I can't, like when if you ask me for example like why is this person being crazy i won't be able to answer it because i don't like whenever i try to put myself in their shoes i can't figure it out my brain turns upside down and so i i think the answer to that is i don't know now why don't more people recognize it i think in mcconnell's case it's because he's very smart and he's very clever and uh he d does a couple of interesting things one thing he does is that he will say very little uh to the press directly but he will put everything on background and it kind of keeps them in the loop a little bit and keeps them a little bit sort of, they're not favorable towards him, but they cut him a little more slack than they would say like Ted Cruz is just an asshole. Um, and, and, and McConnell's just really smart and uh, you cross him, you die. 
So I think uh, that's probably it's just not worth messing with that guy. So he's, he's, he's a great craftsman, in your opinion, then? It's, it's yeah. not the... Yeah, uh, sadly, yes. He's, he's, <laughs> he's misguided. He shouldn't want to do... Well, it's hard to say he's working on policy issues that are different because he doesn't do anything, you know? Like, he's, he's basically the guy that says no to everything. Yeah. And I think he likes the power, and I think that's it, at the end. I, think, I don't think he's thought about why he's doing it. What do you think this country, and, and I'm a proud member at this point, it's been 20 years since I lived here, but what do you think that rugged individualism and this idea of, you know, pulling up by the bootstraps is in complete cognitive dissonance to the reality of, of A, corporations, B, top-down economy, what, why this dissonance works? Why is this fine? Because people don't question things. <laughs> they, don't, they don't question anything. I'll give you a third one too, the one my parents believed, work hard and uh, you'll eventually get rewarded. That's crap too, actually, as it turns out. Uh, and it's indirect, it's diametrically opposed to individualism, if you think about it, but it's also a lie. To whose benefit? The guys with all the stuff. Uh, you know, so th this, is, this is not a new thing. And nobody questions it because as long as they're not super uncomfortable, they don't have any reason to. Hmm. Uh, and as long as we got a couple examples of people like, you know, my parents knew people who worked hard and made it. Uh, there aren't many of them, as it turns out, and no. it's kind of a stacked deck. But at the end of the day, you know, as long as you got enough to not have to worry about it or not feel like you got cheated and robbed, you're probably okay. It's and funny. I always had this uh, uh, analogy or parallel. It's like you keep talking about the American Idol winners when it comes to their successful careers after they won. But the reality is there's only one a season. And even then, not all of them are successful. Yet you somehow tell them as a more key editor. They're not. The success is not built like that. It's not a lottery win. Yeah. It's, it's, it's rugged individualism and even vertical mobility, which, by the way, is negative. There are first, this is the first generation it's negative, right? In, in the States. Well, they, they've been warning about that for a while. I don't know that it's been in an upward. I mean, part of the problem is it was all technology. Yes. You know, for example, like part of the reason why the baby boomers did better than their parents is because 90% of their parents grew up on a goddamn farm. And we didn't have that problem because 90% of our parents didn't. Well, okay. I, that seems like we kind of slacked into doing better, right? I mean, so then we had cars and stuff. I think the reason why the next generation isn't doing better because we didn't take a leap like that. There wasn't one to make. It's get a house, get a couple cars, have some kids, and uh, well, that's it. I mean, there, there's we did exactly what the last guys did. There's no change. In the absence of cars, in the absence of building our economy on the back of, of European debt, World War II style, and the yeah. absence of, of vertical mobility being as viscous as it is, because it is. Yeah. What do you see? Again, I'm, I'm totally relying on the fact you're a futurist and I'm totally relying on the fact you're a thinker. Um, knowing everything COVID has kind of pushed forward, which is my, my little musing on it is things that I thought would take 30 years took three months. I, I, that's my, my encapsulation of, of this little thought process or thought exercise. What is your take on, on how do we get to that Star Trek future that, that is around the corner in many ways, at least in my idea. Um, but where, where are we in the in-between place and how do we get there, or at least how you see us getting there? Yeah, so it, it depends on a lot of random factors involving basically political will. But for example, one of the things that Biden said, which he's absolutely correct is, is that um, you know what we need in order to get out of the situation we're in, aside from everybody to quit going to raves and churches and you know licking each other at college campuses is, <laughs> Uh, you know, we can't go into austerity to get out of the national debt. And in fact, we don't even need to because we can instead, you can juice the economy and grow your way out of it. Like what happened at the end of World War II. We know this works. And in fact, we know austerity doesn't because Germany just tried it. And it, again, didn't, it's never worked. 
So that's one. We need to be able to convince people and somehow make it not a political talking point. The problem is, is that at least in the United States, you've got one party that is not going to let the ruling party have a win because they'll never see the light of day again. They learned that lesson back in the 30s. They cooperated with Roosevelt on the New Deal. It worked. There wasn't another Republican elected until 1952. That was almost an entire generation. And that, and that was just a, a coin flip because Eisenhower wasn't really a Republican. So there wasn't another Republican elected until Nixon. So we're talking 1928 to 1968. That's what you get if you play ball. You, you, don't, you don't get it. You get the minority power forever. So part so, of the politics but, are going to control it. Go on. Well, that's a bit. On the other hand, there's ways to sneak stuff through. If you can get stuff off the radar, like that's what happened to gay marriage, for example. And unfortunately, this was a better example pre-stacked Supreme Court. But this has become a non-issue for many people where, you know, like 10 years ago, people are like running campaigns on it. And today it doesn't even come up. In fact, I saw a great sort of, you know, where are they now article about this guy who was an Iowa GOP guy who that was like his big deal. And even he was saying, I can't remember why I cared so much. Well, the reason you did was because it got people to vote. The minute nobody right. cares, then it's off the table. So we need to get stuff like, you know, stimulating the economy off the table and not worry about, you know, the debt will be taken care of with the growth and the SRD won't work. But thing two that's changed, and this remains to be seen how this goes. It has been the case for a while that our technology has been progressing faster than the regulatory system. Mm -hmm. and, and I don't mean that regulations are bad. Regulations are very good. But it turned out that due to mistakes that were made in medical technology in the 20th century, and you got to remember, like, give me an example, like uh, my, here's a really good example of how far technology went. My great grandmother died in, I think it was like 2005 or 2006, and she was 105 years old. Wow. Now, she broke her hip about three years before that and refused to go to the hospital because the last time she was in the hospital was 1948 and they gave her ether. Wow. And in fact, most people didn't have kids in the hospital because everybody knew hospitals were death traps where they would do a lot of this untested procedures on you because they didn't think about all the crap they tried to do in the 40s that was like off the table. It's like almost everything. Medical technology is almost 100% different. The regimen for deciding whether or not technology worked was developed at the same time when hospitals were death traps and medical technology was like, you know, whoops, that polio vaccine accidentally gave people polio crap. Or the, the screwed up swine flu vaccination in the, the 1970s under the Ford administration, the, there was a, a need for a regulatory machine to slow everybody the hell down and stop the science from killing people. It's moved to the point now where, and a, a really good friend of mine, Juan Enriquez, uh, who's with Excel uh, VC out of Boston, said this in the best way possible. I think it has gotten to the stage where it used to be the case that doing things too quickly killed more people now taking too long kills more people and in, in particular with cancer drugs and in this case the vaccine like for example the as, as amazing as it is that pfizer and as it turns out a hundred other companies in the across the globe were able to put together a vaccine and move it into production within nine months and in fact the uh the pfizer vaccine it was the pfizer and moderna one of those two was designed in two days because mrna technology is a known thing just they'd never used it for anything before they were able to put this thing in production, get it out the, the door in nine months, could have been the following week. Now, now I'm not saying it should have been, right. could have, uh, they, they, if you skipped all the phase three trials or whatever, and I'm not saying that they ought to have, but I think that there may be, they need to take a closer look at how these trials go, especially with like some of these, these cancer drugs that are coming up, like the CAR-T immunotherapy, 
uh, with, you know, some of these, there are cancer drugs out there in the pipeline that have a 98% success rate on stage four patients that have had wow. cancer twice. And they're wow. in the pipeline and they've been there for years. And this Juan Enriquez is basically saying, it's like, hey, stage four patients will take any goddamn, they'll inject bleach into their necks. I mean, I would. You're they tell do. Me that's not work. Do. Yeah, that's let's chemo. do it. Oh, it that's burns. Chemo. Yeah, take it. <laughs> I'll take it. I mean, you get, they're ready, you know? And so clearly some changes need to be made along those lines. Cause I think you should let a stage four person have whatever the hell they want. That but was a part of the platform rate. when you ran, right. When it comes to the idea of policy kind of catching up to technology. Right. Exactly. Because certain things have progressed past where we were, especially medical technology 50 years ago. Does that answer your question in a very long roundabout way? One of the promises I see is that in order to streamline the system to get this virus out or this vaccination out the door, uh, there are a lot of other things that are going to benefit by a shortened design cycle and uh, sort of the kicker specifically to mRNA technology. One of the really cool things about that, by the way, uh, to explain to people how that works, uh, NPR had a really good description of it. They said, imagine like the virus, like normally the way your immune system works is the virus shows up in your system, your immune system goes, got to kill that. And then it does. The problem is, is that you could put virus in a vaccine, but then you might get the virus and die from it. You could put killed virus in there, but sometimes your, your immune system goes, well, that's dead. Or sometimes that virus is not dead, and then you die from that. What mRNA does is basically, if the, imagine the virus is instead a car that your immune system can recognize on-site as a car, but they inject it into your system with no wheels and no steering wheel, and the engine block's cracked. Your system still goes, that's a car, and basically goes, that's a virus, and kills it, but there's no way you can get sick. So that's why that technology is so cool. And the other thing about it is, is that you can retrofit it for other diseases rapidly without having to change the entire production facility or supply chain. It's crazy. Wow. So let's say uh, SARS-CoV-3 COVID shows up next year. They can crank that vaccine out the door later that week. Now, again, you know, I'd like to see them test a little bit. But I, there's same. a bunch the way, of other things out there that we haven't tried this on. So yes. that, that particular technology is a game changer. What is your what is your confidence coefficient when it comes to because I'm hesitant, considering the you know the phase three trials and where we are specifically with this, I have a lot of questions when it comes to A, the trials, B the long-term effects, three, the different groups, because if you look at the groups more intimately, which I'm sure you have, you you talk about the news almost every day. Uh, what is your confidence coefficient with the rollout and what would be your take on where to take it? Because both my partners saying they'll take it the moment it shows up. I am more of a, uh, where are you on that? Yeah. So I think everybody's got a different risk profile on that. My thing is like, I'm in sort of that unknown where I'm unlikely to be killed by it if I get it, but uh, these long-term side effects look really freaking bad. And that scares me worse. I'm actually more scared to survive it uh, than I am to die from it. Uh, so that said, it's like, but I also, I'm in a good, I don't have to go outside so I can kind of keep this up forever. You know, like I can wait and let everybody else get in front of me. Meanwhile, if I lived in a nursing home right now, I'd be like now, absolutely now. Cause they're kind of in the same position as our hypothetical stage four cancer patient, which is if you're in a nursing home, you're in, you're in deep crap. Or if you're a front, uh, you know, a frontline responder, yeah, it's a little risky there too. So I think it depends on your risk change. profile. Yeah. Now, however, uh, so the assuming that nobody lied about the data, and I have no reason to believe they did, the Pfizer vaccine and the Moderna vaccine look pretty good. The AstraZeneca one, I got some questions. Now, these don't necessarily mean it's a deal breaker, but the AstraZeneca had a weird thing happen, and they announced it weird, too. So what they announced was 
is they said our vaccine is 70% effective, which is still amazingly good as far as vaccines go. But then they said, but we found through the trials that if you gave somebody half a dose on the first shot and a full dose on the second, that went up to like 95. And everybody's like, wow, that's great. The day that came out, the thing I latched onto was, how in the hell did that happen? Yeah. Like, were you doing two separate trials? Like, when would you ever go, let's see what happens if we just give a guy half a dose? Well, so within two days, they somebody finally got the answer on it. Turns out what happened was it was a manufacturing error. Oh, they no. screwed up. Several thousand doses got out there were half strength. And that's how they decided to keep running it because they're like, well, we'll just run this as a different thing. And it was 3,000. I think people got the half dose and then the full dose. The problem is, is that that wasn't set up as a separate study. So technically speaking, it didn't follow the regimen. Now, <laughs> but statistically, yeah. Statistically, okay, we're pretty good. It's good. Pretty good. Uh, you know, that's the one I might be like, yeah. Like, so for example, if you said, well, we only got the AstraZeneca, me in a position where I don't have to go outside, I'd be like, mm, pass. And not now, uh, if I was 95 years old in a nursing home and this not is all we got, I'd be like, let's have it. Light me up. So that's kind of where I'm at on that. It, dep it depends on your risk profile. I think at the end of the day, assuming the data holds, statistically speaking, the AstraZeneca should be fine, but there are some obvious questions. And I think that's problematic for them if there ends up being an issue. And also their vaccine's not mRNA. No. Not that that matters because mRNA is the experimental technology. What they did was something we all knew already. So anyway, uh, the other thing is there's more in the pipeline. And if you, if you wanted to bank on like which one's the safest, Johnson & Johnson's coming out with one that's probably going to be like the last of the phase three trials. They're going to be the latest one to the market, but theirs is like shelf stable. And, you know, right. it's, they're, they're playing the long game. Johnson and Johnson's like, you guys get the experimental negative 80 degree Celsius ones out there. We're going to make the one everybody's going to use forever. And uh, that's the game they're playing. So if you're looking for the one to take, I'd be like, that's probably the one I would wait for. Just hang in there. Just hang in there. Speak yeah. real quick on, 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 that's actually a good topic to kind of wrap up, but it's not wrapping up. I'm more curious about, Considering everything that has happened in automation is not taking 30 years and we kind of got to that remote world. You and I work remote pretty much 90% of the time, or at least I do. Um, there is a shift in terms of how we look at workplaces, how we look at uh, collaboration, how we even just produce, just, just generally produce. So supply chain aside, because it requires people and I will get to the point, I, I don't think that we have drones good enough yet to do supply chain just yet. Yeah. But, I, but, but what? I said, not yet, but uh, give it five or 10 years. I mean, I'm exactly. Get there. Yeah. That in mind, what is the world, like big cities like San Francisco, where I am, New York, and, and you travel often, or at least you have pre-COVID, pretty much to all of them. What is a world in the in-between world? What is the, this in-between stage we're going to go to? Um, yeah. I have a lot of, yeah, go on. Well, so here's what I think to go on with that. So I live in uh, central Kentucky. And I've been running a virtual office since we started in 1999. And for the life of me, I have not been able to understand why nobody else did this. And then when they finally are like, oh, hey, let's do telemedicine now. I'm like, finally. Oh, my God. Like, this has been so frustrating for me. I'll give you an example. So my oldest son was born in 2003. And I was like, well, I'm going to go get a digital camera, which were fairly new at the time. But I wanted a digital video camera. Didn't exist. And I was like, are you kidding me? Why does a digital camera not exist? And it just turns out because the memory at the time was too expensive and nobody was making one, but I was like, come on. And I felt that way about remote offices and also uh, remote conference calls. Like I spent a lot of time traveling because I had to, I had to take the meetings in person. Nobody was going to have a video call with me. 
it wasn't going to work out. But now everybody's scattered to the four winds. It's the only way to do it. This has actually been, I've been doing this for like 21 years and finally it's worth it. Like uh, I haven't traveled anywhere and I probably will just because, but I, I wouldn't have to going forward because people have gotten used to it. And so and to give you an idea of the way the landscape has probably changed, I'll use an example of a friend of mine who's a, he's a video game attorney. And uh, so this guy uh, was living in Queens and his firm was in, I think it was in downtown Manhattan. Uh, and so he commuted that every day. It was like an hour or two living in, you know, Queens paying probably what you guys do for rent. So that won't shock you. But for somebody in Kentucky, I'm just like, you gotta be kidding me. Anyway, so this all hits, uh, they go full virtual. And he, in the meantime, had a cabin that he'd been building somewhere in the Poconos or someplace. So he and his wife and his baby, they, they left to Queens and they went out there temporarily. And then a weird thing happened. He, and he told me this too, because I asked him this question. And he said, well, here's how it shook out for us. So they're a law firm and everybody can do most of the things that you need to do in a law firm remotely. So that's not a problem. But he said, what was weird was, is that uh, the way it impacted people. And there was no obvious rhyme or reason for it. He said, for example, for him, he went from being one of the top 10 earners in the firm to being the top earner in the firm because he apparently just does better at home. He's got more time to think. He's not distracted. He doesn't have to commute an hour a day. Uh, whatever it was, he got way more productive. And he said other people are as productive as they were before. So they didn't make any difference. And he said then other people are less. He's like, so his prediction, and I think he's on point on this, is, is that we are probably never going back to 100% in-person office ever again. But we're going to go to that mix of the people who need to be there will be there. The people who don't will not. And uh, I, that's probably yeah. how that's going to play out. And it's going to be great for me. Now, what is that going to do to cities, though? Well, it depends on where you live. Uh, <laughs> if I'll give you an example for that. So a friend of mine who lived in Brooklyn, well, here's the greater example for New York. Of all the people I know, and I know dozens of people who live in New York City, only two are still there. Whoa. All the rest of them left. Yeah, they all moved out. And in fact, oh. one of them just uh, jumped into a car last week. She packed up her apartment in Brooklyn, put most of her stuff in storage, packed her cat and all her clothes into a Jeep that she bought. And she's driving around the country just going wherever because it turns out spending the night in a hotel and paying hotel rates outside of New York city uh, is <laughs> a little cheaper than a Brooklyn apartment for one. And so when you have economics like that, what I think you're going to see is for example, the reason San Francisco real estate is so expensive is because people got to be there. Uh -huh. Well, if I don't got to be there and now I don't, by the way, like I had a lot of stuff, I was doing a lot of things in San Francisco mm -hmm. right before this thing hit to the point where if a couple of things had happened, I was going to start maybe looking at, trying to buy a house, even though housing is literally 10 times more expensive in San Francisco than it is in Kentucky. Now, granted, stuff's going on in San Francisco. I get it. <laughs> but what if it didn't matter anymore? And all of a sudden it doesn't. But I have to ask the question, okay, so what is your take on, because there is this thing in business, and I know that over time, generationally speaking, that will change because I'm already seeing it eroding. This idea of sharing air. So when it comes to certain deals, when it comes to certain, not just, just VCs or institutionalized financing, but rather the broader idea of sharing deals, there is this concept and I'm literally meeting it up head on with several of the things I'm doing on day-to-day -day life. And this idea of sharing air, like there are certain things that are happening in my life right now during COVID that I had to meet certain people, distant, masked, the whole thing, but in person in order to move something forward. And I, I feel it's generational friction but it's yeah. there, but yeah, yeah. it's there. It's, it hasn't gone away completely. But again, I think like my friend said, for those people who need it, then I guess we're gonna have to keep doing that. 
for those of us who don't, then I guess we're not going to. And that's going to change how it works. Well, what's been interesting watching was, is of course, you know, you're in San Francisco. New York had the same thing where they ran out of U-Hauls like in April and May because everybody was getting the hell out. Uh, well, meanwhile, a really funny thing happened here. I was expecting real estate collapse and I live in Lexington, which is like, eh, it's 400,000 people. It's like, eh, it's a small, big town, I guess, or something. It's, it's, it's I was town. figuring real estate, I figured real estate was going to collapse around here. It didn't, it went up. And the reason why was everybody started coming here. They were like, oh my God, I could buy a 2000 square foot house for 200 grand. I'll take five. <laughs> I'm going to get my real estate empire going. And uh, yeah, and like it's still elevated. Like before COVID, real estate was going for about a hundred dollars a square foot. And now it's one twenty-five. Still cheap. Uh, we've seen the same around, by the way. We've seen the same uh, yeah. much everywhere around. We've seen it at the Mid Peninsula. We're seeing it in Palm Springs. We've seen it in the Russian River. All of those. Yeah, Palm Springs markets, lit up. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's, it's it's absurd. Uh, Everybody's with, spreading uh, out. <laughs> yeah. In fact, um, I had a couple of friends that were living in New York City with their kid that came back to move. They actually moved back probably permanently they don't have to be in New York city. Meanwhile, their kid is still enrolled in school in New York because we're on the same time zone. So it doesn't matter. They're doing remote learning. <laughs> they don't know he's not in New York. They can't tell. So, so you, yeah. You're a proponent of this idea of, because you know, this idea of a stacked workplace and you're going to have some sort of an hotel reservation and the people that need to meet in person will kind of be stacked over the week and you don't need to be the whole week there. Right. Uh, or you'll do what I do is like, I would come to San Francisco. I would do four days worth of nonstop meetings. You, you've, you've been along on a couple of them. <laughs> and then I'm back out and I'm good for two months. So there you go. And I think there's sort, of, there's sort of advantage in this to like kind of bring it back to where we started, which might be a good place to come full circle here is that what this has the net impact of is that basically there is still a need for information exchange between the middle of this country and the outsides of it. And I felt that a lot stronger when I started business school because I was like one of the only guys who wasn't from California or New York or Seattle. And uh, there's just a lot of like, sort of like, I'm not saying that people got to understand, but if you guys were here, that would change the politics. And if the politics change, then everything changes. And <laughs> that's, that's one of my great hopes is that perhaps if we can keep this migration going, uh, this might be the watershed that changes it all. So here's hope. Wow. That, that's a profound one. Well, on that note, yeah. let's hope for a bluer-ish country, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> There you go. Or at least less crazy anyways, because whoever's in power is eventually become nutbags. But until that happens, I'm going to, you know, only one side's bad till, till they aren't. So there you go. Well, thank you very much, Drew. Uh, yeah. Anytime. I'm Ron Zakai. This is a little gay guy. This was Drew Curtis. Thank you very much for your time. Um,